This is the 96 AD podcast, episode 20, The Deification of Emperors. Between the start of the Roman Empire under Augustus to the ascension of Diocletian in 284 CE, roughly half of the emperors of the Romans were enrolled among the gods after their death. In many ways, the administration run by the emperors was supported by and rooted within the cult of the emperors created through deification. Legitimacy and security in their reigns would be secured by placing themselves among the beloved and worshipped gods of the Roman pantheon, projecting their power to the furthest borders and beyond by forcing their subjects to make sacrifices for them. It should therefore be clear that turning your predecessors of the purple into gods is not just an act of piety, of mourning, nor of appreciation. It is a political move. Central to imperial policy, deification of a predecessor is frequently the first action taken by a newly elevated emperor. This is the second episode in a two-parter about a table that I've made for an essay for my class on Roman religion. This table has the first 48 emperors of Rome. In the first episode, I gave an overview of the Roman Empire to 284 and the ascension of Diocletian. Today, we're going to talk in depth about deification and the paper that I wrote for that class. In general, I see two considerable ways in which emperors were enrolled among the gods. First, the simple and peaceful dynastic transitions of power result in deifications just about every time. Emperors who die a natural death, and especially those who have reigned for a long time and into old age, are obvious choices to be deified. This is the largest and most considerable group of deified emperors. In fact, until Pertinax in 193 CE, this would describe every single deified emperor. Unless, of course, you subscribe to any of the theories that suspect Augustus, Claudius, Titus, or Trajan were poisoned. Second, emperors who died violent deaths at the hands of usurpers only for those usurpers to themselves be usurped. In these cases, the second usurper presents themselves as the avenger of the original emperor, who they view as being unjustly killed too early on. And the deification of them is a logical extension of that. The nearly sole focus on the political aspects of these deifications can be demonstrated by seeing just how many emperors were deified during the crisis of the 3rd century, despite how many were being killed so shortly into their reign. Now let's explore the imperial cult a little bit. The Roman imperial cult became a central part of the identity crafted by Augustus upon the creation of his empire. As time would go on, Augustus, his family, and future emperors would be indicted into the imperial cult. The emperor and their family became a central part of the Roman state and religion. Days such as the emperor's birthday would be celebrated and be included as an official festival in the Roman calendar. Several prayers and festivals that were directed towards the well-being and celebration of the state were redirected towards the individual of the emperor. Augustus built temples into his house on the Palatine, which were open to the public. The public nature of these temples affixed to the royal residence connected the personal worship of Augustus to that of the people and the state, ensuring that their worship was one and the same. The imperial cult would be largely a feature of the capital, but the honoring of the emperors was still taken up in the provinces. There was a strong devotion to monarchs in the east before Rome came around, as was typical of Hellenic culture. In the eastern provinces, it was typical to have a shrine to Augustus in every city during the Augustan period. While there is direct worship of dead emperors, there was an emphasis on having no direct worship of the living emperors. It would be against Roman sensibilities for the emperors to outwardly project themselves as gods. Despite this, it was a deliberate move of the emperors to create more reverence to their person in life. 
We know of citizens in the East taking oaths to the emperor and to his family, rather than to the state. It is clear that the majority of private worship of the provincial subjects was directed at the living emperor, rather than dead and deified ones. Priests would frequently be appointed for living emperors, even in the provinces. A deliberate choice by the emperors, especially starting with Claudius, was to enforce the veneration of the emperor's genius as paterfamilias of the entire Roman people. The genius is a regular household god which is regularly worshipped privately and is connected with the head of the household, the paterfamilias. When Claudius was given the title of paterfamilias, that is, the head of the household, over all the Roman people, he was therefore enabled to enforce the reverence of the associated deity, the genius. It is clear that the motive behind this is to get the Roman people to worship the emperor in a way that is not offensive to those who believe that the living emperor should not be divine. This was just a veiled way to worship the living emperor. Unlike what would be typical for a Roman cult, no cult statue or temple was built, likely to make the veneration of the emperor's genius less offensive. What this should demonstrate is that the imperial cult was a deliberate and important part of the imperial administration. Sitting emperors would use the institutions of the cult of the emperors to drive their own legitimacy and to cultivate a populace devoted to them, and not to the numerous claimants in the provinces. It was important for the men in the purple to insert themselves into this religious tradition, and the deification of predecessors was an important part of this. A way to compartmentalize all 48 emperors in my table is to divide them into three categories as I described in the previous episode. These categories split in 96 CE with the ascension of Nerva, and in 235 CE with the ascension of Maximinus Thrax demonstrate distinct periods in Roman history. The early dynasties are defined by long reigns of the successful Julio-Claudian and Flavian emperors, with short reigns dispersed in between. The high dynasties start with the long streak of the so-called five good emperors, and then a mixed bag of reigns with the severance. Finally, the crisis dynasties are a pool of short reigning emperors, topping out at reigns at usually only six years, with the great outlier of Gallienus, who spent a decade and a half on the throne. We can see how these periods are distinct based on the rates of deification. For the early dynasties, it's but 36.4%, for the high dynasties, it's 66.7%, and for the crisis, it's 54.5%. Overall, the total rate of deification for the first 48 emperors of Rome is 54.1%. The early dynasties have what may be seen as a low rate of deification, at under 40%, especially in comparison to the high average reign length that these emperors possessed. For the early dynasties, the average emperor reigned for over 11 years. For the high dynasties, it was over 10 years. And for the crisis dynasties, it was just shy of 3 years, with an overall average of all the emperors being an average reign length of 7 years. The high dynasties are represented by high average reign length and a correspondingly high rate of deification for this series of evidently good emperors. Finally, the crisis dynasties contain an exceptionally low average reign length, less than three years, with what might be a surprisingly high rate of deification, it just about matches the total rate of deification. This period, as I have explained, is defined by a series of soldier emperors who usurped the sitting emperor and were themselves usurped after a few years on the throne. It may therefore be the immediate assumption that the rate of deification of these emperors should be low, and we will soon see why this is in fact not the case. One element that appears clear to me about deification, especially later into the tradition, is how simple and little effort it would have been. Early in the empire, priesthoods would have been created for each new deified emperor, with perhaps a statue and a temple being built as well. 
There would have been a certain personnel and financial cost and commitment to deifying an emperor. But, as early as Nerva, we know of priests of deified emperors representing multiple figures at once. Additionally, by the time of the Severance, we don't even have official priests appointed for newly deified emperors, with the last priest of a deified emperor being appointed by Pertinax. For these reasons, it seems that deification of a predecessor would have been not much more than an honorific granted by the Senate. In many ways, it would have been a safe and easy way to create support from those who liked the previous emperor. Many emperors we could be certain were deified by their entries in the literary sources and coins don't show up among the lists of canonical deified emperors later in Roman history. The Chronograph of 354, an artistic and illustrated history of the Romans, created in 354 CE, contains a series of birthdays of deified emperors. Only good emperors are included in this list, and what is perhaps surprising is that many of the even deified emperors are not included. It's almost certain that the emperors Claudius Caesar, Gordian II, Gordian III, Philip the Arab, Gallienus, Carus, and Numerian were all deified, but are not included in this specific list or other lists of this type, such as in the Historia Augusta in Aurelian, a list of good emperors is given and these same exclusions are made. It is my belief that certain emperors will be deified but make a relatively small impact in terms of actually receiving devotion in the provinces or even the capital. It is certain that the elites in the provinces would have picked and chosen particular emperors, new and old, to venerate in their cities. Therefore, low-impact and short-reigning emperors, despite being deified officially by decree of the Senate or their successor, would not have actually received considerable worship. If it was not expected for a newly deified emperor to be widely worshipped, then there was a very small likelihood of opposition to their deification in the provinces or the capital. The deification would have been nothing more than just a ceremony. If anyone wished to ignore a particular emperor's memory, they were absolutely free to. As far as I can tell, the deification or veneration of a predecessor is never cited as a reason for an emperor to be overthrown. Deification would have therefore been a safe move for new emperors to make, and in the turbulence of the 3rd century, safe and simple ways to generate support would be greatly appreciated by those soldier emperors. Decius ascended to the imperial throne in 249 CE, rising in revolt against the sitting emperor, Philip the Arab, after being successful on campaign. This is a typical ascension for the crisis of the 3rd century, and what might be surprising is Decius's move to deify Philip after he consolidated power in Rome. This was a violent rebellion, so the question remains, why would Philip then be deified if Decius had to rise in revolt against him? What may be more surprising is that something of this manner happened multiple times. The following seven emperors were deified after violently being overthrown. Claudius, allegedly, Caracalla, Gordian III, Philip, Gallienus, Aurelian, and Probus. Of these, Aurelian's successor was certainly not a feature of his assassination, and it is dubious for Gordian III, Gallienus, and Probus if their successor was responsible for their deaths. Regardless, these emperors were all violently overthrown and were deified after their death, and this shows that it is a significant feature of Roman imperial politics to make a move like this. The case of Decius deifying Philip is indicative of the whole issue and is worth investigating as a case study. Decius launched a revolt against Philip at the behest of his troops, who believed him to be a better emperor than Philip because of his successes in war. The reluctance of Decius to take the purple in Zosimus's new history may be a feature of Zosimus's perception of Decius as a good emperor, who would frequently be reluctant to take power, but it also may signify a reason for the revolt and the just treatment of Philip. 
After all, Decius was appointed to the revolting army by Philip himself, and Zosimus stresses how important and dangerous of a posting this was. There is no reason to suspect the relationship between Philip and Decius was anything but amicable, and that Decius was genuinely forced into revolt by his ambitious troops. Decius's move to deify Philip was therefore a way to gain the supporters of Philip, who would have formerly been Decius's adjacent allies. The simplicity of deification would have made this decision a no-brainer for Decius. Decius's attitude towards the dead emperor he overthrew was positive. No purge can be found of Philip's supporters except the immediate effects of the battle. This served to make his ascension seem less violent, less needless, and that those in favor of Philip could expect a smooth transition of power and no harm from the new emperor. Simply put, Decius did like Philip, he was forced into his revolt, and he wanted Philip's allies to support him as well. An interesting thing to consider about deified emperors is the way in which they died. Of the 48 emperors on my list, 13 died of natural causes, 30 violently, and 5 were unclear. Of the 13 emperors who died of natural causes, every single one was deified. Only about 36% of the violently killed ones were deified, and recall that the total rate of deification was 54.5%. The fact that naturally dying emperors were all deified should be relatively unsurprising, considering that any emperor who died naturally would theoretically be succeeded by someone chosen, or at least very amicable. This successor would choose to boost their legitimacy through connection to that previous naturally dying emperor, and the obvious way to do so is through deification. It's quite surprising the extent of the discrepancy in reign length, though. Naturally dying emperors reigned on average 13 years each, while those who died violently reigned on average 4 years. What is remarkable is to that what's remarkable is to what extent the naturally dying emperors were successful. We know that the average deified emperor reigned on average nine and a half years. Naturally dying emperors reigned on average considerably longer than the average deified emperor. So there's evidently not a direct correlation between natural deaths and deifications. There's something more at play. Naturally dying emperors reigned far longer than deified ones. Yes, every emperor who reigned longer than Gallienus, aside from Tiberius, was deified. Emperors who reigned so long simply had a legacy that could not be questioned, so there's trivially a connection between reign length and deification. Gallienus reigned 15 years during the crisis of the 3rd century, and despite the fact that he was murdered in his tent, it was still crucial for Claudius Gothicus to request his deification. But since the average deified emperor reigned four years less than the average naturally dying emperor, the question of reign length and deification must be more subtle than simply equating long-reigning and deified emperors. Well, the one way to explain this discrepancy is a series of short-reigning emperors in the crisis years were perceived as dying too early, and are avenged by an ultimate successor. The emperors falling under this category include Pertinax, Gordian I, Gordian II, Decius, Claudius Gothicus, and Numerian. These emperors are all deified and reigned on average about nine months, and none reigned longer than two years. Removing these seven emperors generates an average reign length of 11 years for deified emperors, closing the discrepancy considerably, yielding a more direct correlation between reign length and deification. Deified emperors reigned considerably longer than those who were not deified. As I see it, the deified emperors fall into two diametrically opposing camps. One camp is the long-reigning and naturally dying emperors who were always deified that reigned on average 13 years. 
Second, we have a series of beloved emperors of the crisis of the 3rd century whose deaths resulted in brief civil wars and an avenging successor ultimately trying to create legitimacy through their deification. These emperors are not low impact either. Of these seven emperors, all but Numerian appear in the chronograph of 354's list of imperial birthdays, so they were still liked a hundred years later. These short-reigning emperors, deified after their unjust deaths, are generally accepted to be good emperors, not even just decent emperors, unlike Gallienus, who does not show up. An interesting thing to take away from this is how deification changed throughout the centuries. In the crisis years, it was standard to deify a predecessor if it would generate any goodwill. However, in the early dynasties, deification was extraordinarily rare far more rare than what we perceive as the less stable crisis years. It may seem to be the case that a high rate of deification is a feature of only the most and least stable points in imperial history. It would appear at its highest rates with the long-reigning Antonines and with the short-reigning crisis emperors. But the low rate of deification in the early empire could just be a feature of the imperial cult still being anew at the time of the Julio-Claudians. It appears as though the early emperors had far more to draw on for their legitimacy, and it was far likely for them to be challenged for power. Based on the natures of their deaths and successions, I'd imagine both Tiberius and Otho, who we've talked at length about on this podcast, would have been deified in the political climate of the crisis of the 3rd century. That is, if they reigned in a more dodgy time, they probably would have been deified. If Tiberius and Otho were deified, this would generate a deification rate of 54.5% for the early dynasties, putting it on identical footing with the crisis years and almost identical to the overall rate of deification. Tiberius and Otho would likely have been deified because of the nature of the two types of deified emperors I have identified. They each fall into one of those camps. Tiberius reigned 23 years and his successor, Gaius Caligula, didn't like him but was ultimately his heir. If Caligula felt at all insecure about his rise to power, he would have deified Tiberius, even if he did kill him. Philip the Arab, Claudius Gothicus, and Carus, who may or may not have been responsible for all their predecessors' deaths, had to deify them in a similar manner. Gordian III, Gallienus, and Probus were all undoubtedly liked, and all things considered long-reigning emperors, so their successors were obligated to order their deifications. In the same vein, Caligula ought to have deified Tiberius if it were not for the strength of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the lasting influence of Augustus, and the extraordinary popularity of Caligula's father, Germanicus. I believe that Otho would have been deified because he falls into a similar situation to those avenged deified emperors. Otho committed suicide after but a couple months on the throne, and the ancient sources are mostly kind to him. And recall that Vitellius, who ultimately unseated Otho, was revolting against Galba, so no one really had a direct problem with Otho's rule. Vespasian, the next successful emperor, would rise against Vitellius due to his vices and extravagance. In fact, the army that unseated Vitellius from power were those with a particular alignment to Otho. For these reasons, if Vespasian were any less confident in his ability to hold Rome, he would have deified Otho to secure the loyalty of those troops who supported him. However, Vespasian was in an extraordinarily powerful position, with the entire Eastern Empire in unwavering support, with the rest of the empire defecting to his side throughout the brief civil war. His unusually powerful position allowed him to skip past the deification of Otho, but any uncertain crisis emperor would have no doubt deified him. Now let's talk about dynasties. 
Of the 48 emperors, I counted 30 as dynastic and 18 as not dynastic. The average dynastic emperor reigned over 10 years, and the non-dynastic emperors reigned a year and a half on average. The rate of deifications were 70% for dynastic emperors and 28% for non-dynastic ones. And recall that the overall average is 54.5%. It should appear obvious that emperors having familial connections with predecessors and successors will result in higher rates of deifications. Whether they're a devoted blood son, a thankful adopted heir, or a distant relative, newly appointed dynastic emperors will almost always deify their predecessor. In fact, with the sole exception of Valerian, every founding member of dynasties is deified. Of the eight dynasties I recorded, half of them ended with a non-deified emperor, and if you ignore the last member of each dynasty, then dynastic emperors have a 77.3% rate of deification. This is an extraordinarily high rate of deification, and should represent what stability, whether real or just perceived, that dynasties brought to the empire. For one thing, with the exceptions of Valerian and Carinus, every dynastic emperor in the crisis of the 3rd century is deified. It seems that any emperor who had the ability or the fortune to hold on to power for enough time or with enough control to pass the throne to an heir would be perceived as good enough for deification. Heirs brought into the purple during the crisis years would certainly deify their fathers. It was one of the only ways for them to generate legitimacy over the random generals in the provinces. What's more interesting, and perhaps surprising, than the fathers being deified, however, is that their heirs would be, almost always, as well. For non-founding members of dynasties in the crisis years, only Carinus, the last crisis emperor, is not deified. Gordian III, Hostilian, Gallienus, and Numerian are all deified. So despite the fact that all four of these emperors died violent or likely violent deaths, there was a considerable respect for their name and dynastic relationship, deification was warranted. Now it should be clear that dynastic emperors are almost universally better appreciated and reign for considerably longer. A subtle feature of this, however, is that the emperors I've labeled as dynastic are the ones who had successful dynasties. Among the non-dynastic emperors, just about every single one attempted to start a dynasty. Macrinus, Maximinus Thrax, Philip the Arab, and Gallus all had young sons as co-emperors or heirs. Several other non-dynastic emperors elevated other family members to be their heirs, or appointed ones outside the family, such as the famous case with Galba in 69 CE. These non-dynastic emperors are only labeled as such because those sons and heirs did not succeed them. They were murdered alongside their senior emperor. So for this reason, we can look at the results of the table and can conclude that dynastic emperors are better and more successful than non-dynastic ones, but the emperors had to be successful already to create dynasties. So all that we're concluding is that successful emperors are successful. It's rather cyclical and trivial. Also consider that many more emperors are dynastic than non-dynastic, and so therefore the non-dynastic emperors could be seen as simply failed emperors. They failed to become dynastic emperors because they reigned too short a time. So perhaps instead of saying that dynastic emperors are better, we should discuss how better emperors became dynastic ones. There's still much to learn here though. One interesting thing to appreciate about this is to what extent the dynasties are an indication and creators of stability and success. Emperors that were members of successful dynasties are overwhelmingly more successful, and as a result more often deified, than those not part of one. When one considers the importance of deification of the emperors of the Romans, and to whom it was granted, there are many obvious and subtle aspects to contend with. It has been shown that emperors would be deified without much thought, especially later in the empire's history, because of how little commitment it was to do so. 
many emperors would be deified with no financial investment required, and their rank among the Roman pantheon is forgotten within a century. Many things contribute to an emperor being more likely to be deified, reigning a long time, dying of natural causes, and being a member of a dynasty. Emperors who ticked one or more of these boxes are almost guaranteed to be enrolled among the gods after they die. What subtleties lie in the numbers generated by my table is in emperors who are deified despite doing the complete opposite of one or more of these rules, or in how these rules feed into one another. Those who reign longer are more likely to die of natural causes and to spawn a dynasty, for example, so these are not mutually exclusive rules. Furthermore, there is a distinct group of emperors in the 3rd century who were deified as a result of dying too soon, doing the exact opposite of one of my rules. This is counterintuitive and skews the numerical assessment of the average reign length and deification rates as calculated. To answer the question, why were emperors deified, the answer is quite simple. It generated some kind of advantage, however small, to their successor. The details and the extent of the deification is left up to the individual circumstances of the emperor in question and a bit of chance. That will be all for today's episode. For now, if you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 9680 subreddit. Just head on over to reddit.com slash r slash 96ad. You can find the link in the episode description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I will respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student who's attempting to work, study, and produce this podcast all at once. I'll see you in the next episode. (laughs) 